welcome to another episode of The Extras, where we answer your questions from the Sunday Sermon at St. Paul's Anglican in Carlingford. And today I'm joined by one of our preachers, Peter. Hello. Hello. Hi, Candy. Hi, Extras listeners. Yeah. And now I would like to comment here that I've always thought Peter had quite a DJ voice, a very smooth voice, and I've told him that before. So, yeah, we're in for a treat in this episode of The Extras. Stay with us, listeners. Coming up in the next hour. Yeah, smooth FM. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, now, Peter, what passage did you preach on and what was kind of the key idea? Yeah, well, we started off our new series in Matthew's Gospel. So we're dipping in at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. That's where we're picking up the story and kind of a real big turning point in the Gospel, in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. It's the moment where finally Jesus asks his disciples straight out, who do you say I am? And mm. Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, that's right. That is revealed to Peter from heaven. But then straight away, Jesus is announced as the Christ, announces the Messiah, and he immediately begins talking about the church, the people he's going to gather to himself. Mm, great. So it's a bit of a turning point. Mm. And this kicks off our series also in Matthew, um, which will be coming up in the upcoming weeks on Sundays. Um, now, Peter, we've got here that you've mentioned about Jesus's identity and you talked about the Son of Man and you've referenced, you said, Jesus is not a nice man. Now, why did you say that? And also you refer to something called Jesus H. Christ, um, which confused uh, one person here. Do you want to just clarify a bit? Yeah, I'm glad for the opportunity to do that. I know that I did misspeak at one service and I said, Jesus is not a nice man. Of course, Jesus is a nice man. He's very nice. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, what I uh, meant to say was Jesus is not just yeah. a nice man. Of course he is a nice man, but not just a nice man. It's interesting how in this passage he's saying, well, who do people say I am? And there's lots of opinions out there. And I think one of the opinions out there in our culture is that Jesus is just basically a nice guy. He said, love everyone, be kind to people. This is a kind of a misapprehension because Jesus uh, does have a message of love and kindness, but of course, there's much more than that. He's the Messiah, God's saviour, sent to rescue us from sin. Yeah. So he's a nice man, but he's much more than that. Yeah, and I remember you sort of saying, if he's just a nice man, we don't have to deal with the problem that he might possibly be deluded in saying that he is God's son and that he's the Messiah. And sort of, is he telling the truth or not? And that being a question we have to wrestle with. Um, what about potentially Jesus H. Christ? Was that just... That's right. And that's the kind of thing. Some people will say that as a, as a bit of a swear, yeah. won't they? Of course, that's uh, not what I meant or intended by that. Just wanted to really make the point that uh, Christ is not Jesus' surname. I yeah. think people tend to assume that that was probably his name, Jesus Christ. But it's important yeah, for like us Peter to remember. Yeah, like Peter Baker. Yeah, Candy Grice, Jesus Christ. Yeah. No, he's Christ Jesus. He's Messiah Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Mm. Peter, you also mentioned the Son of Man, and you talk about um, that being possibly a mysterious term. Mm. But one of the questions we've got is, in Daniel 7.13, doesn't it give us clarity about the Son of Man being the one who will come in glory and receive the kingdom and the power? So what do you mean by it being mysterious? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to talk about it a little bit. Um, so in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And it seems that he's talking about himself in the third person. This is his sort of way of designating himself. Nobody else calls him that, but he calls himself that. 
And his disciples get it because they start talking about the things people are saying about Jesus. So they understand that he means himself. And at plenty of other points in his gospel, he's talked about, um, you know, the Son of Man. So when he uh, heals, um, uh, yeah, when he heals the paralytic, he says, well, you know, but so that you might understand that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, uh, I tell you, get up take your mat and go home. So obviously he's referring to himself there, the Son of Man is him. Uh, now, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, as our questioner points out, talks about one like a Son of Man, mm. who's this figure who's given this uh, incredible authority from God, this unending kingdom. It's So there, Son of Man is used in a particular way in that passage, and Jesus definitely sees himself as that figure, uh, the one who's the Son of Man coming on the clouds, receiving the eternal kingdom from the Ancient of Days, from God the Father. And so at the end of Matthew's Gospel, it becomes very clear that's how Jesus thinks of himself. So yeah, so why is it mysterious or confusing? Well, the key thing here is really that Son of Man is used in that passage. It talks about one like a Son of Man. Mm. But the term is really much broader in its reference than that. It kind of just means human being. So if you look at Ezekiel, God calls him Son of Man a hundred times. And it just means you human man yeah you are a son of a man yeah that's yeah. right so the most basic form of what that phrase son of man means is literally you're born of a person like yeah obviously yeah human guy human guy yeah that's right <laughs> and so daniel sees someone who looks like a human guy getting all of this authority and the the distinction there is from all of these beasts and animals you know they look like beasts they get kingdoms of their own but then daniel sees the final kingdom belongs to someone who Looks like a human guy. Now, nobody used Son of Man as the title for the Messiah before Jesus. So Jesus pops up and starts talking about Son of Man, and it's mysterious because it's a pretty general term. It does pop up in Daniel 7, but people wouldn't have immediately made that connection. It wasn't until after Jesus that people started to read Daniel and say, oh, that son of man, that is Jesus, the son of man. Yeah, it's used much more often in the Old Testament to just refer to someone who's a human being. And even in Daniel, that's kind of the base term for it. Yeah. Now we're going to look a bit at the background to the passage that we looked at on Sunday with some questions about, for example, the location. So Caesarea Philippi, is that significant at all? Yeah, well, Caesarea Philippi, it's kind of uh, way up north. It's in Gentile territory. Um, and as uh, one of our questioners points out, there was a, a cult of a, a kind of a local uh, local god, um, idol, Pan, there. Um, it's perhaps worth pointing out that uh, neither Matthew nor Mark, who's, who's Matthew's source here, really makes anything of the fact that it's Caesarea Philippi. They don't spell out what its significance is. Mm. Uh, so I think we're left to kind of try to work it out for ourselves. Uh, my hunch is that the, the kind of significance probably has to do with this theme in Matthew that God's people, the people you might expect to pick the Messiah and to acknowledge him and follow him, by and large don't do that. Yeah, it's very sad. It's one of those things in Matthew you really see the condemnation of the chief priests the Pharisees, the scribes, the people who are meant to receive him and reject him. It's a real tragedy, yeah. yeah real tragedy. And Matthew has this kind of forecasting that, that what it will ultimately mean, ultimately mean, one of the things this rejection will mean ultimately is that the gospel goes out you know, to, to all the nations um, and 
uh, we get a, almost a little forecast of this because way off in mm. Gentile territory, who who are the first? You know, where's the first place that Jesus is recognised as Israel's king? Well, not in Israel, but actually out you know amongst the nations, and that's that's finally where Matthew's going to land his gospel that. Jesus goes to be proclaimed as Christ in in the territory of all the nations to the ends of the earth. Yeah, he doesn't quite get received in Jerusalem, but at Caesarea Philippi. Mm-hmm. What about the term Hades? Could you just quickly clarify for us? Is that referencing some kind of location that was known back in the first century? What does that term mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's possible. Um, however, and there's not a strong, um, at least I'm not aware of ancient sources that connect. Uh, Hades or the gates of Hades uh, with uh, a, the region around Caesarea Philippi. It's actually a term from the Old Testament and there's a few of them floating around in this passage. So uh, the Greek word uh, is Hades. Mm. This is the Greek term for a Hebrew expression, Sheol, which you, you, know, you might have seen in some Bible translations, Sheol. Mm. Um, you'll take me down, my grey hairs down to Sheol. Uh, it's the place where dead people go. When you're dead, Sheol is where you are. So mm. Hades is the place where dead people are. Kind of like we might say the grave. We don't mean a particular grave. We mean the idea of you know, people are in the grave, that people who are, are dead. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and that expression, the gates of Hades or the gates of Sheol, um, it's in the Old Testament a bunch. It's in Job, it's in Psalms, it's in Isaiah. And Jesus seems to just be referring to kind of death as a power that can capture and hold people. Yes, that's really helpful. And we've also talked about Sheol in the past episodes. You can kind of go back through those and listen to those to find out more about what that means and what the Old Testament has to say about that. And I think it's also important sort of to think about the the what that term means because and whether or not there are ancient sources that back up the reality of whether that location existed or not. So, Peter, could you tell us, for example, what are some of the ancient sources that would be reliable? Ancient sources that would be reliable? Would be probably, we're talking about things that could be dated to like the first century and things like that, right? Like when you say ancient sources or somewhere around that. Yeah, 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 that's right. So like contemporary references using that name or something like that. Yeah, so that would be the most reliable rather than say someone recently claiming that there was a gate there. It would be maybe more around the ancient sources that would reference that. That is contemporary contemporary of that time. Mm. Um, Now looking at the Old Testament, did the people in the Old Testament claim that they were Christ as well? Or is that something that happened after Jesus' death? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question. Did people claim they were the Christ? Well, a few people just were the Christ. So David was the yeah, Christ. David okay. was the anointed one. So Samuel pours oil on David's head. And so he's the anointed one. He's the, uh, in Hebrew, Mashiach, mm. the one who had oil poured on his head. He's the Christ. And so the kings of Israel are the Christ but the sense of the Christ as uh, not kind of just the king or the, um, the, the one who has been crowned king effectively, yeah. but this kind of end time figure who will come and restore and you know, bring in all God's promises, that's something that kind of grows up over time as the kind of literal, uh, physical monarchy fades away. Uh, but God's people still have all of God's promises, and so they're left waiting. And so the Christ kind of becomes this figure they're waiting for. And that, that happens in, in a later period, particularly following on Israel's uh, exile to Babylon. That's so helpful. Thank you, Peter. Um, often we can sort of look at the term Christ and imme- immediately attach it to Jesus. But actually in the Old Testament, as you said, there are 
in reality, actually multiple Christ because there are multiple anointed ones. In fact, even Cyrus, the king of Persia, is yeah. called the Christ, the Lord's anointed one. Yes, he's God's chosen servant mm. you know, in Isaiah. That's what we hear. So looking at the particular, of, we're going to move on now to the particular specifics of the passage and the different verses and the questions surrounding those. Mm. So in chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah. So who was Simon's father, bar Jonah? Who, like what's going on there? Yeah, well, uh, bar is uh, Aramaic for son of. Mm. And so Simon bar Jonah is Simon, son of Jonah. Um, so it's not Jonah's, you know, first name, Bar. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's actually that, yeah, just son of, yep. Yeah, yep. Um, uh, and who's Jonah? Simon's dead. Yeah, that's we're not, we're not given we much more him, no, info than it. that. Yeah. Verse 14, there are different names uh, that they sort of, sort of suggest, you know, um, in terms of who do people say that the son of man is, and then they... You know, the disciples say, some say John the Baptist in verse 14. Others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now, they're naming all the names of these people who have died. Does this mean that, or Elijah who was taken up, does this mean that they believe in reincarnation? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. Um, now, do they believe in reincarnation in the, in the Buddhist sense of the kind of eternal cycle of rebirth? Almost certainly not. Yeah. No. Uh, but, you know, what exactly do they think in terms of, like, if Elijah will come, what does that mean? Or if Jesus might be John the Baptist, what does that mean exactly? I think uh, we need to remember that people uh, are in Jesus' context in the first century, they didn't necessarily just believe stuff that was based in the Bible. Right? They might have believed you know, things that the Bible said about life, death, and what would happen afterwards. They might have believed those things, but then kind of taken a few steps beyond that. Or they might believe all kinds of other things that just uh, come from the culture around them. For example, you know, the Sadducees don't believe there is a resurrection, even though that's, you know, an, uh, kind of an Old Testament belief. So what do they believe? This is really our evidence, and we have to figure it out. They could uh, perhaps be thinking of kind of a returned spirit. And it seems like perhaps in chapter 14, when uh, Herod hears about Jesus and yeah. says, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, uh, he he might be thinking of a kind of a returned spirit, a malevolent spirit who's, who's come back to get him. Yeah. Um, but it's possible that they also just kind of mean, you know, somebody, when it says who's Jesus is, uh, is John the Baptist, um, like I suggested, they could just mean someone who's kind of taking on his mantle. Like we might say, you know, Boris Johnson sees himself as a modern Churchill. Now, he doesn't think that he's the spirit of Churchill back from the dead. He just thinks that he's someone who can play a similar role in kind of public affairs and, and behave in sort of the same way. So it might just be a sort of a way of expressing something like that. Yeah, and it most certainly is not what the Old Testament suggests would happen in terms of reincarnation. So it's it's a yeah it's likely that they were thinking maybe he's carrying the mantle of someone could be I mean in Malachi there is the there is in Malachi four there is a suggestion of a second Elijah maybe mm. they were channeling that so uh, not kind of thinking about reincarnation necessarily but someone who was carrying on the work of that perhaps yeah, yeah. I think so mm. Peter seems to nail it by calling Jesus the Christ so in verse seventeen he finally confesses that but then later on we see that he didn't really quite get it 
So what do you think Peter was like actually expecting of the Christ at this point that made him say, Jesus, you're it? Yeah, well, I kind of want to say, you know, stay tuned for next week, really. Yeah, know? true, because it's the next week's sermon, isn't it? That's right. Um, but the fact that Jesus tells his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah, is that Jesus knows, uh, Jesus knows that they kind of, they've gotten some way towards understanding that he's the Messiah, but they don't understand properly at this point, and certainly not enough to go around telling anybody else, because they would just get it wrong. Um, Now, why do they think Jesus is the Messiah? Uh, Probably it's uh, things like healing, uh, you know, healing uh, the crippled, uh, the mute, this kind of thing. This links back to, say, Isaiah and this kind of expectation of something that God will do on the day he returns to restore. And it's probably this kind of thing that uh, builds messianic expectation around Jesus. Mm. And Jesus is definitely, you know, we see even in the Sermon of the Mount at the end of chapter 7, the crowds were astonished because he taught with authority. Um, And he's definitely someone sort of special in terms of who he is, not kind of your regular Joe Blog. That's right. Also, he has the Davidic connection, which is very important. He comes from David's line, and that's that's a key piece of the puzzle for the Messiah. Yeah. Looking at the binding and the loosing, uh, what's going on there? Can you can you chat a little bit more about verse 19? I mean, this verse is quite confusing. It talks about Peter being the, given the keys of the kingdom and then, you know, being given the keys, whatever you, Peter, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on will be loose in heaven. What's going on there? Um, maybe actually even, Peter, what do you think the keys are? Yeah, it's um it's a great question. I had a go at explaining it in the sermon, but I'm glad to have the chance to clarify a little bit. It's worth saying that this passage is uh, is a tricky one. Uh, it's Jesus is obviously using metaphorical language uh, and probably a number of metaphors here. Do they refer to the same thing or to slightly different things? That's one important question for us here. And how do we decide what they're referring to? And so people have actually come up with you know various different interpretations of this passage. Uh, and you know, one particular one has gained a lot of currency, the one you know, the Roman Catholic Church sees uh, this in a certain way, and that's something we spent some time addressing in the sermon. But really, the best way to determine what an author means by the words that they're using, including metaphors like the ones we've got here, is actually to look to the context of the book, the, 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 the immediate context within mm. the book itself is the best way to help to understand. So uh, Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we've got these metaphors here of keys, presumably for opening doors, and the metaphor of binding and loosing, so like tying up and untying or releasing. Yes. Uh, So if we flick over to Matthew chapter 23, we get some similar language here as well. So Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, chapter 23 and verse 13. He says, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites!' You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So Jesus is talking here about a door to the kingdom of heaven, 
and teaching that either permits people to gain access yes. or obstructs them. And that's pretty similar language to what we have in Matthew, this idea of uh, the kingdom of heaven uh, and keys. If we go to a related passage in Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11 and verse 52, Jesus similarly uh, is saying, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. Mm. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. So here again we have the idea of coming in and out. Uh, it's related to teaching and knowledge, and here he uses the language of the key. So uh, it seems, taking these things together, it seems that the idea here is having uh, a key that unlocks the, the doors to the kingdom of heaven that lets people in. Now, what exactly is the key? I think in our context, it, it's pretty clear. It's the recognition, the God-given recognition, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's how people find their way into the kingdom of heaven, by acknowledging Jesus as Messiah. Okay, fantastic. And so the binding and the loosing would have to do with, you talked about um, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees being given the woes because they were blocking people from entering into the kingdom of heaven through, through obviously what they were teaching as well. And so here we see the teaching being responsible for loosing and binding. Is that where you see the connection? That's what I think, yeah. yeah. So the, 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 the announcement that Jesus is Messiah. Now, for some people, this actually binds them. It restricts them from going into heaven because they look at Jesus and they think, I don't, I don't want anything to do with a, a crucified Messiah. Mm. That's not God's Messiah. God's Messiah is powerful. He's strong. He doesn't get shamed. He doesn't get defeated. He doesn't suffer. No, they reject a Messiah like that. And they're actually tied up, restricted from entering heaven because God has chosen this suffering Messiah as the way into his kingdom, mm -hmm. as the king of his kingdom. Um, it talks about, um, let's move on to talk about the word church, which appears in verse 18. Mm. I was wondering if you can tell us more a bit about that word and how it's different to the Old Testament temple. Yeah, great. So church... Uh, so we talked about this a little bit in the sermon, uh, church is people. So just uh, the term which is translated church is the Greek word ekklesia, and it just really means gathering or crowd. It's not necessarily even a religious thing. You can, uh, in Acts, there's a, a mob that wants to lynch Paul. That's called an ecclesia, yeah. a church, a crowd. Yeah. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, we, you have the crowd at Mount Sinai. All the Israelites have been rescued from Egypt. There they are all around the Lord at Mount Sinai. And that's called, uh, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that's called the Ecclesia, the Church of God. And what about that compared to the temple? Because at that point in Sinai, it wasn't a temple. They were gathered around. But when there is a temple, is the temple the equivalent of our Ecclesia? No, I mean, I don't think so. I think because the temple is a, is a place. The temple is a building. Mm. Is a building where God lives and it's kind of at the at the center and in some ways it's like Mount Sinai it's like a little portable Mount Sinai the temple you've got the kind of outer court and you've got the inner bit where yeah. God is and you can't go close to that and God's people sort of gather around that it's at the center this building where God dwells but we have to keep these things quite distinct the ecclesia the Hebrew word for it is kahal 
always means people, the mm. gathered people, the crowd. Now, the temple, that's the building where God is. Yeah. But we do see in the New Testament, though, Jesus does actually talk about uh, the church as the dwelling place of God. Jesus kind of brings those p- things together. And Jesus says, there's not a physical temple where God lives. God lives in his church. The Holy Spirit indwells Christians and is amongst us as we are the gathered people of God. We don't have a building, a temple. Ecclesia, church, and temple are, are, are merged when the Spirit comes to dwell in Christians. Thank you. That's so helpful. In the application, Peter, you mentioned that Christ and his church come together. And you talk about prioritizing meeting together as a church um, on Sundays. Now, this question is asking the idea of church in Christ's day would have been very different to what church is at St. Paul's and other churches in Western society. Are we being too legalistic in demanding people attend the Sunday meeting in our building every week to be doing what Jesus really meant? Isn't going to a growth group, for example, more like what Jesus, what church was like in Jesus' time? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I'd want to say, uh, in a sense, church now looks just like it looked in Jesus' day. <laughs> okay. Because church is people. People gathering together because they belong to Jesus, coming together to praise him, to encourage one another, to keep going in the faith. And so that's what we see uh, all through the New Testament. When we hear about the first Christians, they're gathering. So in the book of Acts, we find them gathering daily in the temple when we read in the epistles, in those end bits that are full of names and details, we keep reading, for example, you know, in Romans chapter 16, verse 5, we read about the church that meets in their house. I think it's Priscilla and Aquila's house there. And uh, Junior in Colossians 4, she's got a church that meets in her house. Mm. So different in scale, certainly. So similar to our Bible studies in the sense that it's a small group of people who can fit inside one house, perhaps. Uh, But it's the same idea. People who have come together to praise the Lord Jesus and to encourage one another Mm. in the faith. So is it, do you think it's legalistic? Um, Like what would you say if sort of someone says, hey, it's a little bit legalistic for you to say, Peter, that we should come to church on Sundays? Because, you know, growth group is that kind of meeting together of people. Well, growth group is a meeting together of people and Mm. so is church. They're both really beneficial and you should do both now is it god's law that you should do both and you're subject to sanctions and punishment should you not no but it's god's gift that you can gather with god's people and it's actually something that god has provided us for our good in god's mercy and kindness the way that we grow in our faith the way that we persist as Christian believers, the way we experience the joy of the Lord in our lives here and now is through gathering with fellow believers regularly. And that's why the New Testament, I think, without making it a law, uh, has a firm expectation and urging that God's people gather together regularly. Yeah, we see that in Hebrews chapter 10. You know, it tells us, to not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near so we're told to meet together to consider how to stir up spur one another onto love and good works and we see in acts that the people the believers met every day and if we even think back to 
the Anglican tradition in terms of the morning and evening prayer, people met together twice a day. Mm. So um, I think it's it's not a matter about a legalism or not, but I think like what you were saying, Peter, it's about, it's a means of grace. It's a way that God extends, helps us to be in a family together, to encourage one another as long as it's called today, to not harden our hearts against God's word and to sharpen one another and to walk together because we need each other. That's what God has given us one another for. Um, And so, yes, growth group is a great means of that. um, And so is a Sunday gathering. I think something also um, is to be said about, interestingly, we see in sort of pastoral epistles, the appointing of elders, um, people that are entrusted with the teaching of God's word. And um, we, we sort of think back, what does that look like to in our church? And, um, and, and where do we see that? I think uh, that isn't necessarily in the growth group structure, but in our whole gathering um, as, as the preacher preaches the word. And so it's worth thinking about what, what that looks like to be sitting under authority as well. Um, that, would, that would be also another another angle in which I'll kind of look at the difference between growth group and our Sunday gathering. Peter, in another application, you said God doesn't want to be God without us. But that, so the question is saying, is that actually theologically correct? You know, God is God with or without us. God does not exist because we exist. So, you know, is that statement kind of confusing? Mm. Yeah, I'm glad for the chance to talk about it a little bit more. So God is completely self-sufficient God is God and for God to be God I mean he doesn't need anything else God is perfect uh, within God's self and God is not lonely God Mm. doesn't need anybody else because God is Trinity God is love God is the loving fellowship between Father and Son in the Spirit so God is wholly complete Uh, the Trinity is one and utterly self-sufficient and God's love overflowed in the creation of the world the creation of human beings God did not need the world God was perfectly fine in himself in eternity but God chose not to be God alone without the world God chose in love in grace because there was no need on his part for a world God chose to create a world. He chose not to be God alone, but to be God with the world, to be God with us. Mm. And even as we resist God, turn against him in sin, in rebellion, as we dishonor him in, in, in our sinful existence, still God chooses not to be God without us. God, of course, could eradicate us and be perfectly complete and happy in himself and be just to do so. God doesn't want to be God without us. God wants to be God with us. So God chooses, with no need to, no compulsion to, to become the man, Jesus Christ. God chooses to become God with us, Jesus Christ, for the sake of redeeming us, that we might live in fellowship with him forever. So God, the God we know, the God we meet in Jesus, is the God who is not content to be God all on his own, but actually has chosen to be God with us in eternity. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. I personally find this to be very mind boggling. Like I haven't wrapped my head around it despite four years of more college. So yeah, it's, it's a really hard thing to think about. It's, it's hard to think about 
um, God's self-sufficiency. You know, if you've ever come across the doctrine of, you know, the impassibility of God and, and think about that and God in his eternal self, but also God in Jesus, who is God, who became a man, risen from the dead, now forever a man, because mm. he is not risen as he was before incarnation. So how do you even make sense of that? You know, that, that's me asking that question because I haven't made sense of it. So yes, um, wrestling with these things together, it's, it's hard to think about it, isn't it? Because um, God did become a man for his own sake, for his glory, but also for us. So it's, it's hard to wrap your head around that, I think. Um, but Peter, thank you. That's very helpful to think about God's choice in this matter. You talk about uh, Gandhi, or apparently not actually his quote, that, that um, you know, loves the Christ but finds Christians difficult. Mm. Do you think it's our fault? Or the churches, what are some strategies to, you know, feel more, what are, some, what are some of the strategies to feel more a part of the church when people feel like they just want to reject the church? Mm. Well, I mean, I'm not really, I'm not certain how helpful that language of fault is, whose who's fault is that, <laughs> who's to blame. Well, wait, where do I point the finger? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the truth is we have to point it everywhere, right? Because we're, we're all sinful and yeah. we're all at fault, so... Uh, you know, many of us will have experienced, uh, perhaps in small ways, perhaps in large and, and awful ways, being mistreated by people who name the name of Jesus. Yeah. Mistreated by people within the church. And I think one of the biggest things I've come across is moral failure in church leadership mm. and the devastation that leaves in its wake in people's lives, like being taught by someone whose lives were so different to what it actually was. And, you know, every, you think of all the times they've taught you and it just... I've yeah, seen it really rattle people's faith. It's a, t- it's a terrible, terrible thing. Mm. But we make a mistake if we try to think, well, those are the villains mm. and uh, they're not like the heroes. Uh, you know, our doctrine of sin you know, teaches that we're all compromised by sin and uh, we're all standing in need of God's grace. So who's at fault? We're all at fault because we all bring our sinful selves to church, uh, whether we... Uh, whether we stumble in big ways or, or, or little ways, uh, the reason that churches are hard places to be is because sin is and remains in all of us. Yeah. And actually, Jesus is working his way up to Matthew chapter 18, which is kind of a chapter that's wonderfully real about this. It's uh, totally just matter-of-fact about the fact that uh, stumbling blocks, things that upset people, things that cause setbacks, things that derail us, they just must be there. They continue to exist because we continue to exist as sinful people. Yeah. But then Jesus starts to talk about what a community of, of mutual concern looks like, a community where people are serious about sin and, and trying to clear it out, trying to find ways to reconciliation and to forgiveness and to draw on the unlimited forgiveness of God in Christ to forgive one another, you know, not seven times, but, but 70 times. Mm. So... Uh, this is, uh, is the reality of church, that it's a place that is full of sin. And that's why it has to be a place that's full of forgiveness. Uh, in terms of strategies, I would say if you find church a hard place to be, or if you know you're going to a Christian gathering, you're going to interact with somebody you find really, maybe they're annoying, uh, or maybe, you know, maybe they really have done something bad to you and you find it just hard even to, to, to look at them. I would say, uh, well, actually, I, I should say, uh, if someone uh, has... There are certain kinds of behavior 
that, that you really ought to tell a leader about and it's not just a matter of all well, you need to forgive yeah. and say nothing about it uh, it's appropriate certainly anything that involves uh, any kind of abusive behavior or the abuse of a, of a, a position of leadership uh, to do wrong or the moral failure of a person in leadership this is not a matter of saying oh well these things happen uh, yeah let's forgive and forget kind of thing that's right uh, somebody who uh, is in authority over that person uh, ought to know about that and, and, and you should say something and, and you, you have a right to be uh, to be heard uh, to be heard properly when you raise that mm. um, that that aside uh, coming along and talking about the kinds of you know the kinds of relational friction we experience perhaps in the course of regular life I would just say pray on your way uh, pray for yourself you know, pray for a, a patient attitude pray for humility pray for grace Pray that you'll be able to, like like Paul says, see the good, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever yeah. is honourable. Think about that. Don't you know, dwell on their failings. Dwell on what God has made good in them. And pray for them as well. Pray for that person that you find really difficult. Pray that God will continue to show his grace on them, help them to to grow, uh, to, to, to address the things in their life um, that... Uh, mean that they are hurting or being difficult to other people and yeah. to fan into flame what is good in them and you know I found in my life that that praying on the way to church like that it makes a real difference to the way I go in and the way I interact with that person when we come face to face thank you Peter that's so helpful one of the books that I really love is the Bonhoeffer book called Life Together mm. where he talks about the community of faith and one of the things that he said that has always stuck with me across the years and helping me think about this is he says often our vision of what church should be can become idolatrous. We have this vision of what church should be in our heart and we make it after the image of a church that we would choose and that replaces the church that Jesus actually did choose. Because the church right in front of us with ourselves as the sinners and as everyone else as sinners and hurting each other and making mistakes and being broken, living with baggage um, and, and all of that, all of our imperfections and our selfishness, that's actually still the church that Jesus chose. And um, we need to receive his choice and submit to him. Um, so for me, you know, even if I find someone, um, yeah, even if I'm finding things difficult in, in what God is calling me to do in terms of loving the other person, it's good to be reminded that this is the church that Jesus died for and this is the person that Jesus died for and chose in the same way that he chose me and in family you don't choose each other you know God chooses so yeah I just find that uh, book to be super helpful whenever I'm struggling with that and being disgruntled or complaining about things and about people to just be reminded of it yeah, yeah that's Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer yes yeah great book one. great mm. book that one um, moving on to, we're going to move on to the last segment um, of this episode and talk about engaging with Catholicism, which we have had numerous questions about. Now, you've talked a little bit about keys. Um, that's been super helpful because we've had questions about that. Now, this person is sort of saying that because you talked about the, um, uh, the, the Catholic understanding of this verse, first of all, you said there's a, there's a belief in the infallibility of the Pope's word. This person say, is that a caricature? What does the Catholics actually believe about Pope's words? Yeah, um, uh, yep. Glad for the uh, glad for the pointer there. Um, so the doctrine of papal infallibility is is kind of what's being referenced here. Uh, and as our questioner points out, 
Um, this is not the idea that uh, the Pope can um, uh, never get uh, anything wrong. He can he can um, never, you know, if you ask him... Uh, you know, is it going to rain today? And then he says, yes, it is. And it didn't. It'd be like, uh-oh, like infallibility broken. You know? that's, yeah. that's not it. Yeah, so it's yeah. when he's speaking. The technical term is uh, ex cathedra, uh, which uh, just means when he is speaking, uh, defining doctrine concerning faith or morals for the church. Um, so, you know, the big stuff. So uh, I, I think it it's a false doctrine. This is a false doctrine, yeah. and so I didn't uh, go into too much time explaining uh, it all in detail, wanting to, to focus on the Bible, uh, but that is a, you know, a helpful thing. Uh, but the, that, that qualification doesn't really make it any more palatable, this false no. doctrine of, yeah. of papal infallibility, because when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, when the Pope speaks about faith and morals. The popes have uh, said things like denying that human beings are thoroughly sinful and thus unable to cooperate in their own salvation. They said, no, no, there is something undamaged and that undamaged part can reach out to God and should reach out to God and must reach out to God and merits salvation when it does Mm. reach out to God. And that comes along with the denial of justification purely by God's grace, through faith alone. And so these are the kinds of things that the popes have said, uh, speaking, as it were, uh, ex cathedra, and that's why this uh, doctrine is, is dangerous and, and wrong. Uh, and it is, uh, it's justified on the basis of this biblical passage, uh, but that, it's not a firm justification. That's not what this passage is talking about. So how about. do they justify it in terms of Catholic theologians? How do they justify you know, the infallibility of the Pope or the fact that the Pope has to have a succession of those who are in the seat of Peter? Like, How do they justify it? How do they read this passage? Yeah, well, I mean, just to give the kind of uh, brief overview, uh, because I'm not... Uh, I'm... No, yeah, we're not, we're not expert <laughs> Catholic theologian here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so my understanding is that Peter is traditionally understood to have been the founder of the Roman Church. Um, And historically, it's fairly plausible that Peter did, whether he was the founder or not, uh, was an influential early figure in the Christian congregation in the city of Rome. Now, he was later viewed as the first bishop of Rome, Mm. perhaps anachronistic, because the idea of a, a formal bishopric is maybe something that doesn't belong to the very earliest generation of Christians, perhaps something... That idea of a formal office is probably something that comes a little bit later. And then after that, you have this idea of something called the apostolic succession. Mm. So Peter, uh, as an apostle, uh, kind of gives his apostolic mantle to the next guy and then the next guy and then the next guy. And so you can kind of trace an unbroken line of apostles. This idea uh, comes up you know, in the kind of generations uh, following the first Christians as we move on into the second century A.D., and so the idea that is that as Peter is kind of the first among equals in the apostles, uh, he's the rock on which the church is built, so the later bishops of Rome become the first among, bish- uh, among equals in the global church. And so the idea is that the bishop of Rome, uh, because he stands in this line of apostolic succession back to Peter, the first yeah. bishop, who is the rock on which the church is built, uh, they each bishop of Rome has a kind of a foundational role for the global church. He is kind of the earthly source of its unity, and he has immense spiritual authority, uh, and that you know is passed down from 
pope to pope. Yeah, and I guess maybe they read a bit in verse 19 as well, you know, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you, that singular you being specific to Peter rather than because Peter was actually the person in this conversation that had admitted or confessed Jesus as the Christ. So that might be one way in which they sort of read the passage. Yeah, and so definitely the papal crest, if you look, uh, the kind of logo of the Pope um, has crossed keys behind it. Mm. So that's definitely how they read it. But I think you're right to point out singular. Where does it talk about a a succession here? Uh, Nowhere. No no sense of an ongoing line of... um, any kind of successor, let alone bishops. Mm. So how would you, any tips to approach those who misinterpret um, this beginning, you know, the the beginning of verse 18, you are Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. Because the Catholic church obviously believes in this, you know, how do we point this out to someone else in a gentle way? You know, how do we explain this to people who misinterpret it? Yeah, well... I think there's, I mean, there's quite a large question there, isn't there, about how do we engage with people who might be from a Roman Catholic background? Mm. And of course, the answer is always uh, with grace uh, as a person, a person whom Jesus loves. Uh, you know, even if we think they're, they're badly deluded, um, this is a, a person to be treated with respect and, and kindness and gentleness. Um, and it may be that uh, a misapprehension about this passage is not <laughs> the basic issue for yeah. that person. Maybe they haven't even read the passage. Mm. Yeah. That's right. Um, and um, you could try asking them to articulate why it is that the Pope should be the head of the church and, and see what they say. Maybe they're able to lay out something like what I described, or maybe mm. they have quite a different point of view. Yeah. And I think inherently, um, if we think about, Peter, what you've just said in terms of the Pope's articulation of doctrine being the unit the unifying principle in understanding how scripture is to be read um if you believe in that then who are you to i guess read the scripture here and even if you disagree with what has been said under what authority would you be able to disagree with that so i think that's kind of at least in my experience of chatting with catholic friends um yeah i think i think there is there's a lot less of a sense of um, this is what I understand the Bible to be, therefore the authority or the church must be wrong, but rather it's the church's and the church's interpretation is right and and I am not able to actually read this myself. Um, in the same way, I guess, in our tradition, we're much more, we, we, we think very differently on that. So I think even just thinking through, as you chat to someone, what they believe will change the way that they read the Bible and um, the authority that they sit under. So, and perhaps the best thing you could do with somebody like that was just read the Bible with them, yeah. and maybe they will see, oh, this is a book that you can apply your understanding to, and you can understand for yourself. Mm. And they might think, well, actually, I think this book, the Bible, is saying something a little bit different than what I've heard uh, from Catholic theology. Yeah, I think Mark Gilbert is someone who um, uh, was a Catholic who um, became a Protestant. A lot of his resources are very helpful, so you can look him up. I think he's got a website as well. But thank you for joining us for um, this episode of The Extras. It's been a bumper episode. Thank you, Peter, for answering all of our tricky questions. And we look forward to uh, this coming Sunday, which can you give us a bit of a detail, maybe or a bit of a brief outline of what is happening this coming Sunday? Right. Well, it's the next little episode and things take a, a strange and surprising turn. Messiah Jesus explains that he's going to go and suffer and die. 
his disciples do not like to hear that at all. So stay tuned. Hope to see you on the Sunday. And thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.